When we think of the classics of Islamic thought today, we think in the first instance of works written by the founders of the various schools of theology, law, philosophy, linguistics, Sufism, and historiography, and by subsequent scholars who shaped these fields through their seminal contributions. The aisles of the bookshops around Al-Azhar that I browsed for hours during my visits to Cairo could be relied on to contain such works. But this landscape of relative established classics was not what Al-Husseini faced at the turn of the 20th century. Far from ubiquitous, these works were scarce and difficult, if not impossible, to find. Not only had most not yet been edited and printed, but there were few manuscript copies of them, and the whereabouts of those few that existed were often unknown. Welcome to Middle East Centre Book Talk, the Oxford podcast on new books about the Middle East. These are some of the books written by our members, members of our community, or books that our community are talking about. My name is Usama Al-Azami, and I teach contemporary Islamic studies at the Middle East Centre. My guest today is Ahmed al-Shamsi. He is an Associate Professor of Islamic Thought at the University of Chicago. Ahmed is no stranger to the UK. He completed his undergraduate and master's degrees at SOAS and the LSE, respectively, before heading west to pursue a doctorate at Harvard. Since 2010, Ahmed has been based at the University of Chicago. His research is concerned with intellectual history of Islam, uh, focusing on the evolution of the classical Islamic disciplines and the scholarly culture within their broader historical context. His research addresses themes such as orality, literacy, the history of the book, and the theory and practice of Islamic law. Ahmed's important first book, The Canonization of Islamic Law, A Social and Intellectual History, traces the transformation of Islamic law from a primarily oral tradition to a systematic written discipline in the 8th and 9th centuries. Ahmed's second book, the subject of today's conversation, is similarly a significant contribution to our understanding of Islamic intellectual history. It is entitled Rediscovering the Islamic Classics, How Editors and Print Culture Transformed an Intellectual Tradition. Ahmed, welcome to Book Talk. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. And so just to start this conversation off, I wondered if you could tell us something about how you wrote your book. When did it start? What sources were you able to uncover? And what countries did the research take you to? So part of my formation as a, as a scholar is that I like to browse bookshops in the Middle East and spend hours there just looking at the various sections and reading these books. And for me, they represented something of a tradition that you could just access and, you know, buy and take home with you. And then when I started to think about doing serious research, I was confronted with the fact that not all books I was interested in were printed and some of them had survived, but they were in manuscript form. And that was the first time when I started to think, well, isn't that strange that some books are printed and some books are not printed? And then I became fascinated with the world of manuscripts and manuscript libraries. And the books that I found there were different from the books I was used to in bookshops and, or in libraries that had printed material. So they were, in terms of numbers, the kind of classical works were much fewer than the more recent works. And so I, I saw that these were not the same type of things. They didn't have the same type of books. And in fact, some of the books that I had read and that were familiar to me from every kind of bookshop I've been to in the Middle East, I just couldn't find any copies. There was maybe one copy somewhere. And right. so that, that idea, how strange is it? That <laughs> seems that there's only one manuscript surviving and now we have these copies everywhere and everybody, it seems to be like, oh yes, everybody talks about love. So you know, know about Ibn Hazm's Tawq al-Hamama, but there's right. only one manuscript and that happens to be in Holland. It's right. so like, well, that, that's a strange story. So over time, I mean, I did, you know, as, as you mentioned, my first book was in the ninth century. 
I started to get this strange feeling that I was trying to both access printed material and manuscripts, but I felt that much of our perception had been shaped by people who had edited works. And that rather than just seeing directly into the ninth century, we were seeing the ninth century through some sort of filter that we weren't really familiar or that we weren't aware of. And mm -hmm. while some of these books were edited by Western Orientalists, I mean, especially in the field of Islamic law, that depends from, from field to field sometimes, but especially for Islamic law, it was basically all editors in the Middle East. And really, I didn't know any of them. And so I, I started to think about them and read about them and kind of pay attention to them. And so it was an interest that kind of grew while I was a graduate student. And then I, I started really sitting down and writing in 2014. But I had already collected quite a bit of material in libraries. And I did research in Egypt, in Syria, in Turkey, in various European right. libraries and in American libraries. You open with this beautiful anecdote of finding this manuscript and you kind of mistranslate the title of the manuscript as well because you think the mother of uh, Shafi'i or something along those lines. And it's, of course, Shafi'i's um. I can't remember. Um, Shafi'i wasn't mentioned in the original title and that's why I think you made the mistake. But it's clear that you said, I think, at the end of that story that I knew that I would one day write this book. So this has been in your mind since your doctorate days, basically. And I love the way in which you weaved that personal anecdote and the personal story into something which is actually quite um, the point that you've just made in terms of our academic perception of the field of Islamic studies as a field is shaped by this unconscious bias, to use a sort of fashionable term right now, that I think you've done a wonderful job informing us about, and I look forward to going into that conversation in greater detail as we proceed. If it's okay, I'm going to sort of go ahead and pick a point from your first chapter, where you discuss the way in which the voracious appetite of European scholars for manuscripts from the Middle East in recent centuries, in a sense almost unwittingly contributed to the decline of Middle Eastern libraries, and you kind of signal sometimes their practices were quite unscrupulous as well. So this was a fascinating dimension for me of a centuries-long tradition of Orientalism in a pre-Saidian sense that seems to have been previously largely unknown. I wonder if you want to comment on this briefly. I mean, on, on the one hand, there is, you know, in, in, in recent years, that there have been studies done on, on museums and the collections of museums and, of, you know, the countless jokes about the British Museum and what it contains and where it's right. from, etc. But for manuscripts, I, I feel that there's still a lot to be done. In fact, there's been almost nothing that, that I could draw right. on about the idea of, of where do these things come from. And, and when you look at actual accounts by Orientalists who traveled the Middle East in the 19th century, particularly about even 20th century, that they removed manuscripts from endowed libraries where they knew that you know, these were endowed libraries where the, the, these manuscripts were not for sale. And they uh, sometimes did it by outright theft, sometimes by bribery, very mm -hmm. often. There were also laws in effect that you were not allowed to export these manuscripts. There was an also another layer of kind of illegality involved in the procurement of these manuscripts. Right. But on the other you, hand... You also that, signal... Yeah. Forgive me, you also signal that sometimes the institutional weakness of these endowments lent themselves to those who are the supposed caretakers were in such penury themselves that they would, in a sense, resort to selling manuscripts in order to eke out an existence as well. Sure. In that sense, it was kind of a perfect storm that right. you have a period in which you have, on the one hand, this explosion of European curiosity. And it's important to keep in mind that it was a different curiosity than you would have today. I mean, at that point, you know, early 19th century, people were still looking for the wisdom from the East. I mean, they were looking for yes. information about uh, astronomy or, you know, right. sciences, whatever, to discover right. new stuff, cutting edge stuff. 
but you had the institutions of, uh, of Islamic book culture, libraries, etc., that were built on a system of endowments. And particularly, I mean, you know, my book is primarily about the Arab Middle East. These endowments were in bad shape at this time period. These Arab countries were provinces of kind of non-Arab empires, you know, and while the endowed libraries in Istanbul, for example, or maybe in Isfahan or in Delhi or something were in a better state. The ones in the, in the Arab Middle East were in a, in a much worse state. So you had these libraries in Europe that were funded very well, that had very wealthy donors, you know, where the states themselves were in, investing heavily and individuals, they had money. And then you had these institutions where, you know, the, the endowment that had been founded 200, 300 years earlier, the librarians' wages hadn't kept up with inflation. They were still 300 right. years ago from the Wakriya. Right. And right. that led to kind of rampant kind of selling out of manuscripts. And it, it was right. part of the kind of formation of modern states, modern nation states in the mid-19th century that you have these new libraries founded, the Dar al-Qutb al-Misriya in Cairo, the Zahiriya right. Library in Damascus, where they said, well, look, we have to, kind of break these endowed libraries and put them together and have, have them centrally stored and have librarians right. that, be, that are paid by the government to make sure that right. this doesn't happen anymore. That's a fascinating actually aspect of this, which I hadn't thought about quite so much in the sense that the modern state is actually, in a sense, been instrumental now in preserving these manuscript libraries in recent decades, perhaps for over a century or so in certain countries. And yes, I mean, that's a, that's a transformation, which is also, in some respects, a sort of ideological shift away from the endowment to the modern state, so to speak, which is a fascinating way to think about this. But your comment about, in a sense, the Arab world becoming a provincial region within a larger empire, whether the Qajar, whether the Ottoman, whether the Mughal empires, is interesting because it leads on to a, another question that I had for you, which was about the way in which in various parts of your work you allude to scholars from other parts of the Islamic world. You mentioned Mauritania, Iraq, in the case of Murtada al-Sabidi. I believe he had Iraqi heritage, but he's actually born in India as well, so the great polymath of the 18th century. And while most of your work does focus on Egypt and central Islamic lands, so Egypt to a certain extent with people like Jamal al-Qasimi and others, uh, Syria as well, or Sham, I wonder to what extent you think that the observations that you make about post-classical book culture, and I'm, I'm using a term that you use here, can be extended beyond the Egyptian context if we were to think about some of these other areas. Yeah, so I think it's important that, you know, let's say the majority of my book focuses on Egypt as a stage at which print begins in the Arab world and in which it reaches the highest volume. It's right. a place where it begins as a part and parcel of the kind of modernizing state venture of Muhammad Ali, but also there has a liberal kind of press law, which makes it the place where people just come and print books. And so it's, it's, it's right. a stage for right. people from everywhere. I mean, there's East Africans from Zanzibar who print stuff in Egypt and, right. and people from Somalia and people from, of course, Syria, Iraq, North Africa. I mean, there's European Orientalists who print stuff in Cairo. There's Indians <laughs> right. and, and so on and so on. So it's, it's not like some sort of nationalist Egyptian history. Of course. Uh, it's, and, it's, and you make that it's clear. Egypt, it's Egypt as a stage for yeah, print. Yeah. But for the kind of preprint culture, I wanted to, um, I mean, th th there are certain universal aspects of this, you know, what, what I call post-classical scholarship. And really the, the reason why I call it post-classical, why I think it's apt to call it post-classical, is that the classical material just isn't particularly interesting anymore for most scholars. Right. It's, it's right. kind of, it's, right. it's not a, you know, the way that that kind of works. You speak of, of Hawashi, for example. Yeah, uh, the, 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 there's this culture of, you know, secondary commentaries and tertiary commentaries and even quaternary commentaries, as it were. 
I mean, I, I call that phenomenon scholasticism, which obviously an analogy to European medieval history, a history of commentaries, a history that kind of a, an intellectual worldview in which more or less everything that is known is known. Things can be explained, can be analyzed right. in, in new ways and in, in interesting ways, formulated in interesting new ways. But we would kind of know the boundaries of what is knowable. And right. we have a limited kind of clusters of texts and commentaries on those texts that we consider. Right. And there, there, so there's a certain traditionalism in it that you know right. we, we kind of we consider that certain... What's literary... been bequeathed to us yeah, is yeah. what really matters. And, yes. and also that we don't really venture out and look for books that might have been forgotten or that might have fallen right. out of the tradition. Like there, there, right. there must be a reason why it fell out of the tradition. Right. You give this fascinating sort of anecdote. I think it's um, Yusuf and Nabahani who says something along the lines of you shouldn't publish Ibn Taymiyyah's works because they've been, you know, discarded for a reason. The tradition has recognized that they don't really deserve. Yeah. I think it was Nabahani. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's, that's right. correct. Yeah. And then, of course, Alalusi retorts and say, you know, if you take that logic, Ashafi's work is, <laughs> right. is, is almost gone, but all this right. kind of lewd poetry and whatever, uh, you, you have hundreds of copies. <laughs> right. So that really what, that's what we should read and study. Right, so th right. th there's a certain kind of a, a problem with, with tradition mm -hmm. that, that comes mm -hmm. up and that becomes exacerbated through print that you start questioning, um, you know, that manuscript cultures have a specific logic where right. each copy has to be copied by hand. And right. so the works that have lots of copies that that shows something it shows that these works right. are used that they are studied right. that you have people studying they've them. been accepted you know yeah. this is very often a kind of phrase that's used uh, you know this is this is accepted or this is you know laqi al qabul you know yeah. sometimes they will say that yeah. sort of thing yes but then the question of what if the tradition itself isn't a thing with its own mind you know what if right. there are books that are really valuable that have just been forgotten for whatever reason uh, right. that that right. might be useful to read and and part of this commentary culture is also, and there's this lovely anecdote that really brought it home for me, Taha Hussain in his autobiography, Al Ayam, mm. uh, where they get taught poetry and his, his brother and his friends, they run off to the bookshop to look for commentaries right. on that poetry. And he right. says, that's not how, like, like he's this blind kid sitting there like, that's not how you right. read poetry. I mean, you meant to understand <laughs> right. the poetry. Right. And that kind of idea <laughs> that, that there's, a, there's a fear of, I might misunderstand. Like, what is the correct understanding of this text? Right, like, right, I don't right, have right. any, like, a, a framework, a tradition that explains it right. to me, that there's a fear of kind of deviance that comes in if you take texts that are these orphan texts. Which are not uh, transmitted, uh, you know, yeah. with Isnad and things like this, yeah. But kind of that specific context of, of modernity, of the, you know, yes. the challenges of Western political domination, but also this, the, the knowledge and the power that comes with it, that... Right attracts people to kind of discovering things in their own tradition that right. has actually fallen out of the tradition. And that was for me, I mean, if, if I had to say what the main contribution of our book is, is that I feel that a lot of scholars of, of modern Islamic thought or modern Islamic history, for them, right. there is kind of modern stuff. I don't know, people translating Voltaire into Arabic and right. whatever and doing whatever the modern stuff is, or there's yeah. old stuff. But to think that there is, among this old stuff, there's actually a way of discovering really old classical works that was a right. revolutionary, modernizing strategy that we don't see anymore today because we've taken them to be normal and natural. And uh, I'm sure everybody must have known all these classics, which in fact right. is not the case. Right. That, that was for me the, really the great grand discovery that... In a sense, the epiphany of the book. <laughs> yes. yeah. and, and that for me as well, I mean, in a sense... 
it just suddenly changes the way you see it, the entire tradition. Although, I mean, maybe I can mention another very encyclopedic scholar of our own time is uh, the Mauritanian scholar Muhammad al-Hassan wal daddo And I remember listening to a lecture of his once where he basically described the tradition. I can't remember the exact Arabic word he used to describe it, but he basically says something along the lines of um, and the knowledge that people need is in, sometimes sort of concealed and then revealed just by the vicissitudes of history. He suggested, for example, that the Musnad of Baqi ibn Makhlad, which is this enormous, you know, uh, considered to be the largest Musnad ever compiled, basically has completely disappeared, or perhaps there are certain citations here and there. And then in later centuries, perhaps someone rediscovers a juz or a, a selection of readings of a hadith, and, and that can actually provide a kind of, you know, from his perspective, working within the Islamic tradition, in a sense, provide means of accessing a knowledge that was once lost, but that is now needed in this time. And in a sense, it's God unveiling something, not in a, not in a Kashfi sense, obviously. But um, And so, uh, you know, th there is that kind of sense, even among a scholar working within the tradition of that contingency of what we have access to, which you don't hear it very often. But I think it's great to sort of put that front and center in a book like yours. Uh, I think it's very helpful in many respects. Yeah, um, I, did, I didn't want to, to kind of give the impression that there was like 300 years in which nobody thought about classical works. Right. Uh, right. But I mean, even, uh, you know, I made the experience myself during lockdown now that if the library is, isn't accessible anymore, there's just practical things that, that like, you just can't go and just take all this stuff down and, uh, and work with it. And if you have even just practical decline of availability of works, it has an effect on what your scholarship includes. You know, if your own scholarship doesn't include these works and the next generation, as the next generation always does, is like, okay, what do I need to learn? What do I need to know to be educated? Oh, you know, I need to know those specific commentaries. I don't need to know all this old stuff. You know, there's a few, right, 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 right. You know, maybe there's a few opinions by Tabari that we need to memorize or that we need to right. cite forthhand. But right. uh, we don't really need to read, read that whole thing. Anyway, it doesn't exist probably anymore. Sure. Uh, I mean, and, and so, somebody like Murtada Zabidi, who was, who was traveling all over the place and who clearly had an enormous memory and was able to, I don't know, I mean, some people have that ability to right. kind of take all these pieces of information and put them together, but it, but it, it's very tiring to do. I mean, even today, you know, doing my research, sometimes I had this right. problem that, you know, you are in the Middle East and you're looking at manuscripts, but you don't have a good secondary library. And then right. you go back to your Western institution that has a good secondary library, but doesn't have the manuscripts. You don't have so manuscripts. Even that is difficult today, even though right, we can have we right. have so much digital access. But to think about right, this right. in the pre-modern period, I mean, even for those who who had an interest, it was it became right. more difficult. I mean, I think in so many respects, this idea of you know istiab, so to speak, like having that capaciousness that a figure like Murtaza Zabidi or Ibrahim Al Qurani, uh, some of these sort of post-classical figures, but who in a sense you sort of suggest exemplify this encyclopedic learning or an attempt to maintain that sort of standard, even through a, a culture which, in a sense, doesn't quite value that anymore. You know, I think that's illustrative, and I think you do signal this, including in a remark in your conclusion that I'll allude to in a moment, that the time isn't a uniform time. It's not sort of like, yes, there are certain themes that you consider to be present as uh, deserving the label of scholasticism and post-classical book culture but there are these kind of fascinating figures and in a sense you're homing in on some of these fascinating figures 
particularly in the later stage when they are the people who unearth these texts. I wanted to sort of talk a little bit about, you know, this point that you make between this kind of, um, you could say almost an Orientalist narrative in the pejorative sense of decline versus the attempt by a lot of scholars, you know, of our generation and, you know, I think the previous generation now, who are basically trying to push back against those sorts of problems. And so, you know, in your conclusion, you actually are very careful to highlight that there's a kind of unfortunate but largely superficial alignment of your narrative with the so-called intellectual decline narrative against which many of these scholars have been pushing for some time now. And I thought that your conclusion quite carefully balanced the desire between trying to avoid reinforcing the triumphalism of a kind of Eurocentric scholarship while recognizing that there were indigenous voices of reform that existed that recognized serious deficiencies in what uh, you've called post-classical culture. And I wonder... I mean, this is a question that I grapple with to a certain extent. How do you balance this um, sort of desire in the secondary literature? Or how do you strike the right balance between trying to correct for issues of uh, Eurocentrism, which I think you are quite conscious of throughout your work, but also correcting for the overcorrection, so to speak? So what would you say to someone like myself about that? I mean, on the on the one hand, I think it's always helpful to be really precise, and that the enemy of I mean, the, the the antidote to stereotypes and generalizations shouldn't be just the opposite generalization and stereotype, but it should be precision. And right. so, you know, if we if you take a word like decline, there there are things that you can quantify, and where there is a decline, I mean, like the number of books in libraries in Cairo, or, or, the, or the the number of working madrasas in Cairo declined from the 16th century to the 19th century. There's a clear, I mean, right. it's just numbers. You right. can just see right. higher number, lower number. And similarly, you you can look at American whatever American economic dominance at 1945 and today. And you can yeah. see a decline. Clearly, there's a decline. Right. It, was, it produced right. 50% of all goods in the world in 1945. Right. And today, it does, I don't know how many, 7% or something like this. Right. But the, the, I think the problem of, of the narrative of decline is that nothing happened, nothing worth thinking about or nothing uh, of, of any kind of happened. And I think that we, don't ex- we don't use that for the United States or for Great Britain, right. uh, which similarly right. declined. But we, we use it for kind of post-classical Middle East, uh, right. which right. then is like, it's not like that they were just, you know, just smoking opium pipes lying on, on <laughs> right. couches. Right. So it, you can't take in, my in, book in, yes. to, to kind of re-establish this. Oh, well, we don't, right. have, to, we don't have to talk about that period uh, anymore. Right. Right. But at right. the same time, there's a kind of knee-jerk generalization of saying, oh, look, no, here I give you a list of books that were written in this time period. So it was, a, it was flourishing. Right. If you're not looking right. at what the books are about. Or if right. you say, oh, look, they, they were studying these rational sciences. Look, here there's all these citations, masters of the rational sciences, without right. saying, okay, what were, isn't it interesting that in this time period, esoteric sciences were categorized as rational sciences. So Elmul Huruf right. was considered to be a rational science. I mean, it, it, that's just an important kind of thing to put out there, right? That there's, a, there's a slightly different, but also kind of current way of thinking about it, which is saying things like the state is bad, or the kind of the iron cage of rationality is bad, but right. the Middle East didn't have that. So it becomes like the opposite of the West, but in a positive, in a positive right. way, right? So they didn't right, have state, right, right. they, uh, they didn't have uh, whatever. They had all these uh, ecstatic ways of knowing. So look how right. how this is uh, solving the problems of of the current right, West. Right, right. So I think you know, for me, it's important to understand histories not in a kind of 
melodramatic sense of it's either it was good or it was bad. But actually, you know, what, what was at stake? You know, what, what did it mean to be an educated person in the 17th century as mm. compared to the 10th century, as compared to the 20th century? And right. you know, we, we accept this in European intellectual history that in the early 20th century, like physics. Uh, on the right. atom level or quantum physics, like that was the right. thing where all these young geniuses flogged to. And then in the later parts, you have the DNA is, uh, becomes biology or, you know, not computer science or something like that. There, right. There's these moments that change. Right. It's not right. like, oh, you know, uh, Muslims love books. Look, like Ajah has loved books. That's true. Right. But, you know, you, you have very different stories told in the 18th century, for example, or in the 17th century. So it's right. important to keep, you know, th there's a history. It's not just all the, just the previous the pre-modern Muslim world, but it's just like one arena. There, there's changes right. there. There's a history there. And, and I right. think precision is the antidote to lazy generalizations either way. Right. I, I think, I mean, this is something which I think scholars in our field will have to grapple with for a good period of time because so much of our field is still, in a sense, trying to correct for you know, issues that existed in 19th century scholarship and, you know, early 20th century scholarship, a lot of which um, we're building on and we've benefited a great deal from some of the great scholars of those periods. But they also brought a lot of, we could say, ideological baggage. And I think there is an increase in consciousness, however, I mean, in our own time. And sometimes I think it can become, as I say, it's, it's an overcorrection, the suggestion that ideology is inescapable on some level. And there needs to be precision in scholarship as well as a consciousness, I think, of, of that element. And your book does a wonderful job in, I think, laying down and documenting, and giving facts and figures, and presenting a compelling history. And this is something that scholars will continue to sort of struggle with in some respects. But I think you've painted us a very persuasive picture of how it could be done in a way that maintains a sort of a fealty to an empiricist dimension, as well as a recognition of the way in which indigenous sort of actors viewed their own activities. And I think sometimes when ideology or concerns about it can suppress almost the voices of indigenous actors, that's something that we all need to be conscious about. It's, it's something that we need to be careful and, and thoughtful about. The last question that I have is about a figure who is in many respects quite controversial in our own time and was a bit of a controversialist in his own time, <laughs> to be fair. But in chapter seven, you discuss the Mamluk era polymath Ibn Taymiyyah as a scholar who emerges, as you put it, as a model of broad erudition. Now, you argue that his reputation as an extremist, and you are not alone in this, that his reputation as an extremist in recent decades is undeserved. But you also point out how he had been neglected by post-classical culture. And, and just for clarity, you kind of designate post-classical culture as being from the 16th to the 19th centuries, roughly. And I'm curious to know why the reformists you studied, and you use the term reformist in a descriptive, they were in an effort very self-conscious to reform their societies and their educational cultures. Why these reformists singled out Ibn Taymiyyah as a model of broad intellectual erudition, given the considerable roster of polymaths found throughout Islamic history. What do you think was, for them, special about Ibn Taymiyyah? Uh, I think various elements of his work, of his character, features of his writing that, that were particularly attractive to these reformers. The first one is something that I already kind of hinted at a little bit earlier, is that in his writing, you don't get the feeling that there is this amorphous tradition. These modernist reformers, one of their main challenge was this idea that there is this one thing called Islam, which is identical to the kind of, a kind of an amorphous tradition, 
which you can either take or you can leave. And it, it consists of various parts. And so the question of how do you void this weight of tradition? How do you step out of it, critique parts of it selectively, right. you know, without having to, for example, just become a, uh, a convert to Western rationalism or what, the kind right. of Western intellectual fashions of right. the day? And right. what Intemia showed is that he was himself somebody who is difficult to categorize, right? I mean, who is himself doing this kind of work to the orthodoxy of his own day and who does this with his cards on the table in the sense mm. that, you know, when you read, let's say, Al-Ghazali, you know, a super intelligent person, but he doesn't tell right. you who he has read. I mean, hardly ever mm. does he mention that. Or who he's mm. like he's sometimes he's citing and he's not actually citing like he's kind of plagiarizing. I mean sometimes in, in modern day <laughs> well, would be called plagiarizing, right? Slightly different, Abu Talib yes. al Makki, for example, in right, in, in, in right. Al he he, he right. takes sections from it, doesn't mention it. So it's it's this, right. this one thing. On right. the other hand, I saw a study that somebody did just looking at the Majmu al Fatawa of, of Ibn Taymiyyah. So it's just one large work, but just right. not all of the work of Ibn Taymiyyah. And he cites right. five hundred works in this collection explicitly who the person he's right. citing and from what whatever right. and so he kind of he paints for you not this amorphous tradition but mm. you know the various forms and the, how they relate to each other and groups that have died out that he's read because he's i mean right. he has read so much that's part of the right. issue that he has read right. so much <laughs> and so in a sense he can also be a guide for you into mm. the tradition so right. Zabiri. He basically reproduces Ibn Taymiyyah's Muqaddimah fi, uh, fi Usul al-Tafsir. Because, uh, you know, Ibn Taymiyyah talks about Mu'tazila tafsir and whatever, like, that, that doesn't right. exist anymore. Like, but, right. like, you have somebody who can give you uh, a tour of this. And, you know, there is part, of course, like the kind of historical method, philological method. You know, Ibn Taymiyyah already criticizes, for example, the historiosity of Al-Hussein, the Al-Hussein Mosque in Cairo that... Right, you know, the Fa- right. Fatimids yes, claimed yes, that they had buried there the head of Al Hussein, and Ibn Taymiyyah just like has a, just a normal historical criticism, like, well, I mean, there's no evidence that this is the head of Hussein, and they, you know, sure. people say that they are this there. So it's something that you can take up in, in the 19th century or early 20th century. Ibn Taymiyyah's right. works really were only starting to be published in 1900, relatively late. But it's something that can stand in its own methodological ways, and that is kind of actually philologically rigorous in that sense. And so for different groups, he can serve as a model in different ways. It's not just one specific way. Or if you're particularly objecting to, let's say, shrine culture, which was a kind of basically a universal concern of reformists. Today, of course, we consider that primarily like a concern of hardcore kind of jihadis who want to destroy those shrines. But it was generally right. an issue of, you know, kind of modernizers are saying, look, what is mm. this? Uh, you know, people right. take these as, as quasi higher right. figures that have control over the weather and the harvest, fertility right. of women and this kind of thing. And people were embarrassed about this, right? Sure. It was a source of embarrassment for many people. So they're like, okay, we actually have an indigenous scholar who uh, already in the 14th century criticizes this. Right? So right. He, he has something for a wide range of reformists. So this is really interesting about what you mentioned about shrine culture as well. And I, I'm not familiar with the sort of secondary literature specifically on this. Um, one thinks of Boaz Shoshan's work, which is more about medieval Cairo. But it's fascinating that you also use the term embarrassed. You know, people are starting to become embarrassed about this sort of thing. And I'm reminded that even someone like Muhammad Zahid al-Kothari, uh, Jonathan Brown talks about this in his discussion on weak hadiths, that even Muhammad Zahid al-Kothari is, begins to recognize actually there are certain types of hadiths we should point out as weak because they are an embarrassment considering sort of modern sensibilities and so on. But at the same time, I suspect that, you know, that sort of shrine culture would have, in a sense, 
in the way that you describe post-classical culture, kind of burgeoned in that period in a way that might not have existed on such a widespread scale before. And it would be wonderful if the scholar were to actually, it's, it's a lot to trace through the literature, but to, to actually do what we can to illustrate that that was in fact the case. But it does seem to be suggested by the way in which esotericism becomes quite important, I think, in the way that you've portrayed this. And it, you present a very compelling narrative, that's what I can say. Uh, and we'll be definitely grappling with this for very long to come. And, you know, I can only thank you <laughs> for working on this book. And as we come to a close, I just want to let everyone know that I've been speaking to the author, Ahmed Shamsi about his recent book, Rediscovering the Islamic Classics, How Editors and Print Culture Transformed an Intellectual Tradition. And this has been Middle East Centre Book Talk. Thank you all for listening and goodbye from Oxford. <laughs>